Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answers. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. To grow this community of information and action, I hope you give us a five-star review. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show and download a free prescription for naloxone. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org. That's I-A-S-I-C-1.org. Use their friendly medical library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their free speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a murder conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Murder as in killing someone. On Memorial Day 2018, Bryn Spacer, a 28-year-old audiologist, went on a date with 26-year-old accountant boyfriend Chad Omelia in his condo in Thousand Oaks, California. There, she took three hits of Chad's marijuana from a bong, suffered an acute cannabis-induced psychosis, and stabbed Chad 108 times, stabbed her beloved service dog, a husky, and then started to slash herself in the neck and head. Police body video shows Bryn drenched in blood as she continued cutting herself while kneeling over Chad. She didn't stop until after being tased and nine blows from the police officer's baton. Bryn had no history of mental illness. She said that after using marijuana that day, she thought that she was dead and heard various voices. She thought that she could bring herself back from the dead if she started killing Chad. And the more she stabbed him, the more she felt like she could herself live. The bong and materials at the scene tested positive just for THC, just marijuana. This sounds like a crazy, brutal, isolated case made for the tabloids. But is it? One of the very first podcasts I ever listened to was called Serial. It's a fabulous podcast that got me hooked into listening to podcasts. In season one, Sarah Koenig does an amazing job giving the audience a visual of Adnan Saeed's life preceding his jail sentence for killing his high school girlfriend, Hey Min Lee, in 2000 in Baltimore. The podcast explores his story and whether he is guilty or not since he denies the murder and has no recollection of killing Hey Min. He claims to be innocent. But what was missed in the investigative podcast is that Adnan was using marijuana before he killed Heyman and may have had cannabis-induced psychosis. Perhaps that's why he doesn't remember the murder. A short time ago, I treated a woman who was brought to the emergency department by her boyfriend with agitation and erratic behavior. She told her boyfriend that she had to save him and was talking nonsensically. She thought his life was in danger. And when I saw her, she couldn't make eye contact with me and had trouble answering any questions. She was distracted by various voices in her head. She was fighting the voices that commanded her to cut herself in order to save her boyfriend's life. In my exam, I noticed that she had deep slashes in her wrists and more to her neck. I treated her with antipsychotics, 
and called out our trauma doctors to treat her neck wound. Her drug screen was positive for THC, just pot. Still think cannabis-induced psychosis is rare? I can tell you from the emergency department experience that psychosis and violent episodes associated with cannabis is not rare. Bryn Spacer faced trial for killing her boyfriend, Chad. She, along with many people, have had their lives impacted by cannabis-induced psychosis. Was Bryn guilty of murder by marijuana? To learn more about murder by marijuana, I reached out to two women who attended Bryn Spacer's trial, Heidi Anderson Swan and Dr. Christy Brown. Heidi Anderson Swan is a returning expert to High Truths, co-author of A Night in Jail, the first fictional story that illustrates cannabis-induced psychosis. Heidi and I appeared on Dr. Phil, and we've worked closely together on California legislation to place warning labels on cannabis products like we have for alcohol and tobacco. Heidi is an incredible advocate, educator, and frequently quoted in the media. Dr. Christy Brown is Professor Emeritus at Mission College in Santa Clara. Her son was a victim of cannabis use disorder and cannabis-induced psychosis for marijuana that he bought from a medical marijuana dispensary. He's currently, thankfully, in recovery. Dr. Brown is the communications director of Moms Strong, one of the earliest organizations founded to support parents of children who have experienced adverse effects of marijuana. To learn more about Heidi Anderson Swan and Dr. Christy Brown, check out the High Truth Show Notes. Heidi Anderson Swan and Dr. Christy Brown, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. All right. So let's start with a little background about yourself. How did you come as bystanders to attend Bryn Spacer's murder trial? And maybe we'll start with you, Heidi. So I thank you for having me, Dr. Lev. I'm back again on High Truth. It's an honor to be here. I have a particular interest in cannabis-induced psychosis, and I wrote the first book that illustrates uh, the mental health harms of marijuana. It's called A Night in Jail, and you kindly had me on to talk about this um, a year or so ago. And so this has been an interest of mine, and I volunteer with an organization called Moms Strong, and it was founded by uh, Lori Robinson, who lives in Thousand Oaks, California. And she had uh, found an article about this uh, this event that happened in 2018, where this woman, Bryn Spacer, killed her date. And so this made us all aware of the case and uh, it was it's quite shocking and it's a very clear-cut case of cannabis induced psychosis and so i became aware of that and then julie shamash who i know you know i was talking to her uh, when i first met with her and i told her that i work in cannabis-induced psychosis prevention. And she said, oh, did you hear about this case in Thousand Oaks? And I said, oh, of course I heard about that. And she said, well, my daughter is interning for her lawyer. And I said, oh, really? (laughs) And then at that point, I said, well, um, I'd really like to talk to him. So can we have a meeting? And we had a meeting then with Bryn Spacer's attorney and talked to them about uh, marijuana-induced psychosis and then the other cases of really quite shocking violence that have uh, come along with this. And then so I wanted to uh, follow the trial or observe the trial. And so Christy Brown, who is on this podcast, she and I have advocated together and we decided that we would go to a day or two of the trial and we ended up going to 
every single day of the trial, we were so compelled by the story and really wanting to get the details um, of, of what happened for history, because this is a historic case. That's how I got involved. Wow. And uh, anybody listening, uh, my episode with Heidi, A Night in Jail, is great, and, and you should get her book, um, which is amazing. And uh, Dr. Christy Brown, uh, what about you? So I happen to be um, have a home in Thousand Oaks, and in 2011, my son um, had an episode of cannabis-induced psychosis. It was actually manic slash with psychotic features that lasted like three months, and it didn't stop until he stopped using marijuana, in which case it, it stopped quite abruptly. And I was so shocked by this because I've never heard of it. So since then, I've been researching these cases, trying to find out what happens and you know why marijuana can cause psychosis. And as this has happened, I have seen more and more research articles. I've been following this case of Bryn Spacer, um, which was, you know, one of uh, the most clear-cut cases. And um, so being close to Thousand Oaks, I was able to attend the trial, whereas some of the other cases that I've been following have been far away, and I haven't really been able to get the details. So I wanted to, you know, be a witness and also to support both sides in the case because they both suffered great tragedy from this situation. And I think that there's more we can do about it. Yeah. You know what, Christy, when when you talk about your son just now, also we're going to talk about what happened to Bryn and other cases that I see. When you say that when you're using cannabis, you have cannabis-induced psychosis and it could last a while, and then, and then your brain's off the cannabis and it's back. If you catch these episodes early when you're young, um, you could be fine. And if you don't, and you don't let the, the, the patient, in my perspective, know that, hey, this is cannabis that did this to you, then you're condemning that person for a life of schizophrenia and chronic psychosis. And I, I see that happening now in the medical field is that we're not um, making the connection for the patient that this happened to you because of cannabis, and then giving you at least the opportunity and knowledge to stop when you're young so you could have a normal future. Well, that was exactly what happened with my son because he had a medical marijuana card and he, instead of using his meds that were given to him by the psychiatrist at Kaiser, he's kept using so-called medical marijuana. He had a carte blanche to get medical marijuana and, and he kept having these psychotic episodes during this, this period. And, um, you know, led to him getting arrested for speeding because he was in a psychotic state, was driving, you know, very fast down El Camino Real in the Bay Area. And um, that put him in, in jail eventually. And then in jail, he wasn't allowed to have marijuana. And the first time I visited him in jail, it, would, it was like a fever had broken and he was my son back, whereas he had been, you know, this very different person during that whole episode. So it was such a shock to our whole family and, you know, such a nightmare that I, and, you know, when I said that, that this has happened, nobody believed me. So, you know, I kind of been on a mission to, to find out what's, what's, you know, all, what's it all about and what's happening. Yeah. And unfortunately that's not rare. And I'm so glad that your son was able to get out of it and he got his brain back. 
um, while in jail and that nobody else was hurt because things could be um, things could be much worse. But yeah, I mean, uh, not everybody who uses cannabis gets psychosis, but uh, for daily users, it, it's a you know twenty percent risk, um, uh, which is which is significant. And we definitely I see that in in my my practice. But let's talk about the trial. Um, and here's you know two women advocates who are, uh, have a lot of passion and, and curious, uh, but you're you're not like lawyers or defendants. What was it like to sit in the audience? What what was that feeling like for you to be in a, a court for eight days? Heidi. <laughs> I will say I'm I'm uh, grateful that I was able to be there, and um, this is um, uh, Every Brain Matters, the nonprofit um, uh, gave me a, a, a salary so that I could attend and pay for a hotel room that was close next to the courtroom. So I was really grateful to be able to be there, and I I found it to be um, fascinating and intense, and I was more emotionally pulled in than I I thought that I would be. And like Christy said, for um, both the Amelia family and for the Spacer family, it is heartbreaking in, in so many ways. So um, I took copious notes and, and I'm grateful that I did because um, it, it's, it's hard to remember everything. And we also made a podcast about it with Every Brain Matters and we've had several episodes posted and I was listening to it and I was like, wow, oh yeah. <laughs> about that already or wasn't at the top of my my brain so i'm really glad that we have these uh, details for history yes and those podcasts were great i listened to them too in, in preparing for the show and to you know to learn about the, the trial but um you know so what what i found by listening to the trial one of the things that was most heartbreaking was to see the videos that they played of um the body cams when Bryn was um, actually slashing her own neck and the police were trying to get the knife out of her hand and they couldn't get the knife out of her hand with taser. And then they had to take the uh, nightstick and, and um, hit her nine times to get the knife out of her hand. It was really, really clear. I mean, it's something that I, that I think most people never wanted to see and, you know, really can't get out of their mind. So, you know, it, it, it was pretty traumatic to, see that but it just really verified the the kind of state that she was in that if people don't believe it they should you know they should have seen it yeah. yes and you could see in the video that she's unaware of the peace officers who broke in and they said in the courtroom that they were intending to shoot her when they entered and then they saw what was happening and decided they were just going to get the knife out of her hand and they worked really hard to do it and she didn't even acknowledge them that they were there she was completely lost in her own psychosis and responding to commands in her head and this was something that the psychiatrists who evaluated the tape all agreed that um, she was completely lost in her own world what was it like to sit in the courtroom compared to watching, you know, court trials on TV? Is there a similarity or do you, did you find it, oh, well, this place is much smaller or this is very different or, um, or, or is it just like watching something on TV? 
Well, when we're in, when we're watching something on TV, we don't see, you know, the audience. We're just seeing the lawyers and so forth. And the, I think the space was pretty much equivalent to what you see on TV. And the um, sides were also, you know, equivalent. There's one side that was clearly Chad's side, and then there was a side of people that were more supportive of Bryn. Um, and then there were reporters and, you know, all the lawyers and everything. So it, and it was, the procedure was very similar to what you would see on, on court TV. Interesting. All right. So your, your impression, let's talk about your impression of, of, of Bryn. Um, you got to see what people talked about her, said about her. She testified herself. What was your, what your, what was your impression of her? Heidi, you want to go first? Um, well, I thought that she was very composed and um, uh, seemed like a, a serious, intelligent person. And this is someone um, that I'm observing in the courtroom and just uh, sitting there. And to see the juxtaposition of the body cam video playing on the wall right above her and then her sitting underneath it um she couldn't watch it but of course she had to hear it and the the sounds were horrible horrible with her screaming and her guttural screams um, um i really saw her working to to stay composed and to um, be able to stay there and later we found out during the trial she has a trauma therapist who she worked with to help prepare her to attend the trial, to be able to withstand seeing um, and hearing this video played again, you know, this horrible experience that she had gone through. Um, she was uh, presented as someone who has worked very hard in life. She has a disability. She has hearing loss. And so she's worn a hearing aid since the age of four although she needed it before that. And so she had developmental delays because she didn't have a hearing aid um, at a younger age, her brain didn't develop properly. And so she had to do a lot of catch up work in terms of catching up to her peers. And she spent a lot of time just trying to be as smart as the other kids and then getting involved in activities that everybody else was doing, which was music, dance and, and sports. And so she worked really hard to excel at these things. And um, the defense did a very good job of presenting um, uh, witnesses, character witnesses on her behalf, a, a professor who flew out from Washington University at, at his own peril because he had had a heart attack, one of several heart attacks. He had one the week before, but he believed so much in um, in speaking up for his former student that he flew out to speak for her and to say that she stood out as a, as a graduate student. Um, and so Bryn Spacer is an audiologist, a professional audiologist, and was currently working at UCLA when this happened. So she's, she's a professional, she's um, well put together, educated, and has a lot of discipline, and she has some long-term friends. So I saw her as someone that you wouldn't expect to have something like this happen to, you know, you know, and so to me, then that goes on further, which is if someone who is educated, even in the health industry, um, who has no idea that marijuana can have these effects so to be so completely oblivious to it that she would try it and 
you know, it, it, it really speaks a lot to um, where we are in society today. And I'm, I'll try not to go down that tangent right now. So um, I, I thought that she uh, was, was very sympathetic. Right. And did the defense try to just say, oh, she's just a party girl. She uses marijuana all the time. She should have known what she was doing. That's so I mean, the prosecution. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. The prosecution, the prosecution um, took a lot of text messages um, and tried to um, imply that she was uh, used to being intoxicated. She liked to be intoxicated. And it was mostly about alcohol that she was using. And so they wanted to show that she was still guilty of involuntary manslaughter because she voluntarily used this marijuana and she took a risk. It was risky to do that. Um, so the defense was trying to show that there was something else in the bong other than just plain old marijuana, uh, but they couldn't quite uh, produce the evidence of that because it was sort of an absence of, of evidence because there, everything in the bong had already been burned up. Um, but anyway, to go back to my impression of Bryn, another thing about Bryn to note is that she's very small. She was, um, you know, like uh, really such a small girl that um, I think even the, the prosecution brought up, how could you overpower this, you know, male Chad um, being in, in that state? And it just, just uh, made me think about how much the psychosis had taken over her that she didn't care about, um, you know, any kind of uh, danger that she would put herself in by by doing that, trying to strike out and and just, uh, you know, was like had superhuman strength almost to be able to overpower Chad and, and commit this, you know, um, I don't want to call it a murder because they reduced the charge. So to to do commit Killing. this stabbing. Yeah, you know what? Maybe her size worked in her favor because the police came and didn't shoot her because they saw that she was small. Possibly, and her gender, possibly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, she at the moment that they came in, she wasn't uh, stabbing another person. She was stabbing herself. Mm -hmm. And she almost died. And so this would have been a murder-suicide had they not uh, broken in, got the knife out of her hand after repeated tries, and then... Uh, one officer, uh, you know, put he made sure that she didn't bleed out, and so otherwise she she would have died. So she clearly had an episode of cannabis induced psychosis, a violent one. I mean, people have cannabis induced psychosis. Sometimes it's not violent, but she was you know possessed and acted upon it. Um, uh, you know, following these um, voices that she heard. Does does she have? Did she, when she spoke, did she have memory of what happened or can she explain what was going on in, in her mind? So they played an interview that she had with one of the detectives. She had done several interviews, but they played one where she was trying to explain what had happened. And then she also testified and tried to explain what had happened. But it just came out in bits and pieces that she couldn't remember this little bit. And then she could remember images and it was just kind of a kaleidoscope of, of images that she was trying to explain. And so it was like trying to explain the unexplainable about what happened um, because she was clearly just, you know, having these, these, some, these memories are kind of like shadows that, that came to her. 
So it never became really clear exactly how she was able to, you know, commit the the um, homicide and, you know, get the knife and, and stab Chad because she didn't remember exactly what happened. She remembered a moment of stabbing him, but then not, you know, all the, the times that she had, she obviously did stab him from the forensic um, information. So she had a moment where she did, she did kind of remember. She had moments, yep. she had flashes of memory and she tried to explain it as best she could numerous times and um, it just, you know, it seemed like she said that she was being told by voices that if she did this, that she would be come back to life because she saw herself as dead. So it started out, she thought she was dead. And to come back to life, she had to do first stab, her, stab Chad and then stab herself. That's kind of the summary in a nutshell of what the, the visions were telling her. Mm -hmm. And she would, um, and also she would, these images um, of these parts of her memory, which is uh, consistent with people in drug-induced psychosis, or I think, I'm not sure if it's psychosis overall, um, but the memories are fragmented. And so uh, fragmented within those memories were the images she saw in her head, like she would see uh, copper pots like spinning around and then people coming up to her and touching her like she's dead. Her dog was there. Her mother was there touching her. There were doctors around, people from her family. And she had, they were treating her and touching her like she was dead. And, um, and that they were telling her when she would do things like stab Chad um, that they would say, good, keep going, keep going. You're going to get through this if you keep doing this. And then and then the, the voices escalated beyond there um, that she needed to work harder. So she was stabbing herself to please the voices in her head, following their uh, direction to do more. So, so she would feel, she does remember feeling the electricity go through her arms when she was tased. And to her, that felt like it was moving her forward in um, in her goal to get out of the dead world. Um, and then, but she was so lost in that. So, I mean, it's it's a, an interesting combination and voices in her head and some of what was happening in her. And so one thing that, um, that stood out to me is that she remembers uh, grabbing the knives, but I never heard her say the reason why she was grabbing the knives. And she say, and then, you know, she would describe it as like a screen in her head turning on, and then she would, um, the she would see the hand grab the knife, and then she would see the hand um, put the knife into Chad, and but you don't hear. And then I had to do this, and then um, it, it was like the the motive behind the actions uh, were were not there. She was, it was like she was um, the way she described it. Sound like she was witnessing um, these things happening, like on a television screen. Right, kind of auto body possessed experience uh, that that she had. Um, uh, what about? And then does she? There's no. She said she admitted killing um, Chad. Right. Nobody. You know. Both the prosecution, defense said. You know. Agreed that she killed him. There was no saying like it wasn't me. So the first thing is that both the prosecution and defense agreed that she was in a state of cannabis-induced psychosis and that she didn't have the mens rea to commit the crime. So that's why the prosecution reduced the charge from second-degree murder to involuntary manslaughter before the trial started 
And that's why there was a big delay because the prosecution had an expert witness examine her and he agreed with the defense that it was cannabis-induced psychosis. And he was probably the strongest witness uh, for the diagnosis that it was cannabis-induced psychosis. He was very adamant that she was not faking it. There was no element of mental illness or anything like that. It was just purely cannabis-induced psychosis. So then, um, as far as her admitting the murder, when the prosecution was trying to ask her you know, about killing Chad, she actually doesn't feel like you know, it was her that was doing it. So it was very hard to her, for her to admit it, but you know, it was you know, obviously um, agreed to or stipulated that she did kill him, if that makes any sense. Well, I think she's saying she was in this altered mind and exactly. this, this other person in her killed, but it was still her. It's Right. Right. And so that was kind of difficult for her because she doesn't remember, you know, doing it and she doesn't feel like she as herself would ever have hurt him. She kept saying that, you know, that she would never have done that. Yeah. Or her dog for that matter. Yes. Um, and uh, so the prosecution said that uh, marijuana turned Bryn Spacer into a monster, and this monster killed Chad Omelia. And then she said um, that this is like a DUI. You can't blame someone else for your bad behavior. And and so this is, you know, the big, the, the crux of the case. Is this like a DUI? Did she voluntarily give herself psychosis. Now she was voluntarily intoxicating herself. She did know that marijuana can make you intoxicated, but as with a DUI or, or someone who has been accused of a DUI, she wasn't going to drive. She was going to stay the night. So she was acting responsibly in terms of intoxication. She was staying the night. She was having uh, marijuana. <clears throat> she didn't understand how strong the, the second hit was that that uh, Chad Omelia prepared for her. So when he said, I'm going to get you really high, she didn't understand what that meant. It was um, a continuation of being giddy or getting the munchies. That's what she envisioned. Um, it wasn't ever, if you get more high, you're going to become psychotic and have hallucinations. And this is something that, you know, Christy and I and Roni, we've uh, spoken about. We have to tell people that this is a risk with using marijuana, that yeah. some people can become psychotic. But okay. who is telling them that? Where is the public health information about that? So she had no idea. Um, but so when uh, the, the prosecutor said, you can't blame someone else for your bad behavior, how did she, what would make her think this was bad behavior? Marijuana is supposed to be healthy. It's supposed to be medicine. It's supposed to chill you out. It's supposed to make you feel good. Who other than us is going around saying it can make you psychotic and um, it just hasn't had the same kind of resonance. And so to which I would say to the prosecutor, where's your evidence that this was like a DUI? How can you prove that she should have known? How can you prove that? So I want to so get to the issue of the verdict and whether this is just or not. But but I want to explore a little bit um, more about the trial and the and the people. What about uh, Chad? Um, I understand he was an accountant, um, but he was a regular marijuana user, 
and he died from his own marijuana, right? He prepared the marijuana that Bryn used. It, it sounds to me that he had cannabis use disorder himself. Um, and from what I learned by watching your podcast with Every Brain Branner, Manners, he witnessed cannabis-induced psychosis as well with his roommate. So this is not the first time that he unfortunately witnessed cannabis-induced psychosis in another person from his own um, stash that ended up taking his life. Um, his his roommate was had an episode of psychosis and running around naked, so he he saw that. Um, tell us a bit about Chad and did he have any culpability in his own death? So the the interesting thing about Chad in this trial is he was kind of a phantom. There wasn't much about him except the defense tried to elicit from some of the witnesses who were his roommates and friends some of you know his behavior um, using marijuana all the time. The one that had the um, psychosis from the from taking the marijuana, which he said was his first time, um, said that he thought Chad was using too much marijuana, that if he was at home, he was high. Um, and um, then there was a case where he uh, purchases marijuana from an unlicensed store, which says only for high tolerance users. So there was an attempt by the unlicensed marijuana shop to kind of cover itself with the high potency product of 30% that he was buying. Um, but it, there was really not a lot. And I think that if anybody mentioned anything about Chad, there was some talk of victim blaming, that if you say anything negative about his behavior or that he gave Bryn the marijuana or that he was pressuring her um, to take it or, you know, kind of, um, there was kind of peer pressure, you know, that, that I think there's a lot of peer pressure of, uh, with young adults these days that marijuana is great and it's fine. And if you don't use it, you're kind of a prude, you know, things like that. So. Um, being an, a regular user, he actually encouraged people to take marijuana. That was, you know, said about Vinny, the the person that used it for the first time. So, so he was, you know, bas basically a marijuana cheerleader, and wanted people to get very high and experience what, to him, was really, probably a really great feeling. But we didn't really get a whole lot about him in the trial. So he still remains kind of a mystery to me. And there's still some unanswered questions about his cannabis use disorder and how it was affecting him. I did talk to his dad. His dad came up to me and said, how did you know my son? I said, I didn't know his son or anybody in the trial, but I was coming because of my son's psychosis. And he told me that the prosecute, prosecutor gave him Alex Berenson's book about marijuana, psychosis, and violence. That's amazing. And he said, he said that every middle school student should have a copy of that book. He said he didn't like marijuana, and he you know, didn't approve of it, and here his son was using it every day. So he's very, very much of an advocate for his son, but he doesn't seem to be an advocate for marijuana. So there's kind of, it's an interesting question as to how he felt about that. Yeah, uh, I, it's all, I'm sure, as a parent, very painful. Let's so can I correct something really yeah, yeah. quickly? So the um, so Chad O'Melia's roommate, Vinny, 
had never used marijuana. And Chad and his and their landlord, Steve Bruckner, got him high for the first time just a couple of weeks before the incident with Bryn Spacer. And when uh, Vinny used the marijuana for the first time and he had been... Uh, Chad and Millie had proposed it to him several times in the past, say, come on, let's try it, come on, let's try it. And Vinny's always said no. And so one night he finally said, okay, this will be the night. It's legal. What's the harm? And so he used it and he and he felt like he was going to die. And um, just the one thing that I wanted to correct is that um, Vinny felt like he wanted to take off his clothes and run naked. He didn't actually do it. He just said that he felt like the only way that people would take him seriously and take him to the hospital is if he took off his clothes and ran down the street naked. And so this was a point of contention during the trial where they said, you did this. And Vinny said, no, I didn't actually do it. I said I wanted to, but I never actually did it. So did anybody take him to the hospital? No, no. no. Oh, they just wanted him to sit down and watch South Park episodes. Mm-hmm. That was their and remedy. That was the remedy. And he went to sleep. And uh, several hours later, he woke up and they went out and got donuts. And then the next day he went to work at 4 p.m. and he was still high. And so when a couple of weeks later, when Chad Omelia was preparing a, a, you know, a very strong hit of marijuana for Spacer, I think he thought that could happen would be what happened with Vinny. And you just kind of dismiss it and just it'll go away on its own. There's nothing to do. He offered her water. He offered her water when she first started going, you know, she first felt the smoke, couldn't get out of her lungs before she became psychotic. She remembered that part. And then he was offering her water and she went to the bathroom. And then after that, I think the psychosis set in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think I recall her saying that she remembered he was trying to kiss her as well. And um, and she got uh, upset with him because she was trying to have a conversation with him. And and he would say, oh, you're having a deja vu experience. And he was dismissing, you know, her um, her feelings of that, that this wasn't going well for her. Um, what about the product? Was there anything else in there? Was there PCP or bath salts or acid or, or was this just marijuana? And what so what, what kind of found, testing did did they do? So they they um, found a small amount of marijuana and they tested it. They tested the the bottom of the bong. They tested Chad and they tested Bryn. They found nothing but THC marijuana. And the testing of the small amount of marijuana revealed four percent marijuana. And so the defense was really trying to put a lot of emphasis on that this was not necessarily the marijuana that was in the bong. We don't know what was in the bong, that Chad had purchased some higher strength marijuana in the past. They were suggesting there might've been oils or hash oil or something mixed in the bong, but none of that was found in the condo. Um, Somebody raised the idea of maybe some people took marijuana out of the condo to um, you know, lessen the, the possible repercussions of having some marijuana in the condo, but none of that was put into evidence. So the prosecution could say that it was just plain old uh, marijuana. That was all that was found. Um, and I think that the defense actually muddied the issue a little bit because they were so strongly suggesting that marijuana itself couldn't have done this to Bryn. Um, 
But I think that the alternative explanation is that there was a lot of smoke in the bong that made it very, that this, whatever was in there much more high uh, potency when she actually took the hits. That's what I would say is the explanation in, you know, that that's the most logical. So let me understand. Both Chad and Bryn and the bong were positive only for THC, nothing else. Yes. Right. And then um, you mentioned what they tested in the residue of the bong was 4% THC. No, it was the other marijuana that was found in the house in a jar that was oh, 4%. They tested the whatever was left over in the bong, but they didn't get the percentage of that. They just tested it and found only THC. I think it's really mm -hmm. hard to find 4% THC. That's not California pot, you know, and for somebody who buys stuff from, you know, the, you know, uh, unregulated dispensary and wants that, you know, high intensity product, I don't think marijuana comes in 4%. Well, they had, they also had the expert that talked about the 4% said that um, they, they wrote an email and they said, we can't really rely on that conclusion because if it, when it was, um, if it were smoked, it would have been higher, more like 12 to 16%. So it was kind again, it was kind of confusing as right. to what exactly, what was in the bong because Nobody actually, you know, could test what she had, she had actually smoked, but whatever she smoked, uh, three um, expert uh, therapists, psych psychiatrists, psychologists concluded that it was marijuana-induced psychosis that, or cannabis-induced psychosis that oh. caused that break with reality. And, and yeah. I'm wondering um, from this trial and from all the toxicology reports that they did that um, and I'm wondering if it's just not, you know, I'm thinking alcohol, you know, you could take a beer versus wine versus uh, vodka or even evergreen. And you could say, well, this is hundred proof alcohol. This is, you know, 3% alcohol. Um, but uh, if they're testing this product or the residue of the bong, it's just, it'll just tell you, you won't be able to tell what it was. It's just alcohol. It's just THC. But if she if there was concentrate on top of flour or other things, you know, there was reports of it like packing and packing and packing this bong to, you know, make it, you know, better. Um, there's no way to tell what the concentration of what she took was. Yes, and I think the toxicologist said that. And they also said that the amount was that was in Chad's system and Bryn's system could not tell how much intoxication they had. It wasn't you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been clear just from the amount that they found in their systems because the way that it, um, what you would call degrades or whatever after you, after you have it. Yeah. And I learned something new from you guys is the word moon rock. I've never heard of that. Like, what's moon rock? And maybe you guys want to explain what's a moon rock. Heidi, I think you need to explain that. <laughs> I never heard of moon rock before. Uh, well, I'll let the, let me let me say one thing before I forget it, okay. um, and this is that uh, Dr. Chris Mohandi and um, Dr. Wershing, who both testified, the former for the prosecution, the second for the defense, where they said, you know, the great variability in all of this is genetics. That it, it whatever the potency is, whatever the amount of times it is that a person's used, 
um, the great variability is your genes. So you can't say, just like you described, you know, how, how strong um, alcohol is. You know, we have data on how much alcohol you can consume based on your age, your weight, what you've eaten. We don't have this data with marijuana. And you could, like Chad could have as much as he wanted and due to his tolerance and also his genes, he could have a lot more. And, and the same can be said then for, for Bryn Spacer. <clears throat> but she could have had, the the bong was so tall the mouthpiece was so tall and he he added hit after hit after hit after hit after hit so there could have been no matter what the potency was he had anywhere up to up to 20 hits in that one bong and and he passed it to her and he said here take it take it and he was very much in a rush to get her to take it and this was also one of the big points of contention in in the trial was was she pressured into taking it and the prosecution would say, she's a strong woman. Why would she consider that pressure? He didn't physically make her. But, um, you know, I, I think I remember being in a situation like that when I was younger. People going, okay, you got to go now, now, now. <laughs> Just right. uh, you got to do what you are in that situation. So um, we don't know how much she had. That's the long way of knowing there is no way to know. We just know that it was THC. So moon rock, and forgive me if I don't technically have this all correct. They take uh, marijuana and it's all like um, crushed together. And then they roll it in oil, marijuana concentrated oil. <clears throat> and it looks like a little rock. And then people smoke that. So it's uh, it looks like green leafy flaky marijuana when it's all crumbled up. I see. So it's a regular flour. For what I understood, it's regular flour plus the concentrate. That's it. On top of the flour. Right. Yeah. But they make them into little rock forms. That's why they call it moon rock. I see. And and what's, there was a talk about OG Kush. What is that? Is that like really, you know, strong uh, brand of cannabis or? And I think they looked at his cell phone records, right? And saw that he purchased um, yes, that's the marijuana that he purchased a couple weeks before um, this incident, and it said it was. Uh, they said it was something like thirty percent, and they said that there was a label on it saying for only for tolerant users. So if he had used that with Bryn, who wasn't a tolerant user, he would be, you know, um, you know, violating what their instruction was. You know, like giving her an overdose, almost, but. Again, we don't know if that's what he put in the bong because uh, we can't, you know, go back and it was it was all smoked up, you know, it was all burned right. up. So and it's the same chemical, um, just a different concentration. Right. It's it's just THC. It's just flour, but at a very high high concentration. Right. So then there was a whole discussion. Uh, you guys were um, witnessing. Did she voluntarily use a bong? And marijuana, or did she involuntarily get pressured into it? But when I was listening, thinking about the whole issue of concentrates, like smoking flour versus using shatter or dabs, is you know, uh, like smoking, you know, marijuana versus smoking meth, because those high concentrated THC are like a, a it's like a different drug, even though the chemical is the same, just because of the concentration of it. And I, I'm wondering if if that ever came up about voluntarily 
taking a hit of marijuana, which you know what you're taking, versus involuntarily um, taking, you know, cannabis concentrate, which is, you know, although it's the same chemical, it's a very different, um, you know, type of drug. If they could have proven that, they would have been very happy that the defense had proven that because they kept trying to imply that that could have been in the bong, but they couldn't provide any evidence of what was actually in the bong um, by anything that was in the house at the time, whether somebody removed stuff or if it was, you know, actually there wasn't anything there. So they couldn't really prove that. But I think if, you know, there was a case of that, that certainly would have been um, cause for saying that it was involuntary if she hadn't known that it was in there. Sorry, this is something that the prosecution and the defense uh, called witnesses in about, and the prosecution uh, brought in a witness who said that people don't use concentrates in a bong. End of story. It's called, um, what do you call it, twixting or something, where you put the, the green product in, and then you can drizzle some oil on top and smoke it. And he said, they don't do that. I do all kinds of, you know, interviews every year with marijuana users. I have a family member who's a marijuana user, and they tell me all about the different ways that they use marijuana, and they would never, ever smoke a potent, uh, a concentrate in a bong. To which then the next day, the defense had their own expert witness who uh, is uh, someone who uh, testifies for um, uh, people for medical marijuana. He works with normal and um, and he's an advocate to support people as uh, who use marijuana for medicinal purposes. And he said, of course they do. Oh, because I was going to say that that's news to me. I didn't know that you can, you don't use concentrates in a bong. So people can use concentrates in a bong. I mean, why not? You could, that's what he said. You could do that's what he said. The first, the first person was a police officer who had been trained as a, what do you call it, a DRE, but yeah. then he, his training had lapsed. But anyway, he said you couldn't. And then the other person who was actually a marijuana, medical marijuana user and advocate said you could. So yeah. Interesting. I'm going to start asking my patients that. Now you <laughs> I'm going to ask. I never, I didn't ask them that, you know, like I ask patients, um, like the other day I had a 19 year old who was, uh, pacing in the room back and forth. And, um, the patient was initially seen by one of our nurse practitioners who said, you know, this patient is psychotic. We just need to call the pet team and maybe we'll give him some medication. And I said, okay. But then when I went, you know, to see the patient, kind of like check, um, do my attending physician, um, you know, exam, I asked him, what do you use? And he said, marijuana. And I asked what kind, and he says, wax. And it's like, well, that's important because if I explain to him again that his psychotic state is from that, and if he can understand that, then at 19 years old, he could potentially just stop and be normal, kind of like what happened to, to your son, Christy. And if we just ignore it, it's like, oh, just pot, which we often do in the medical profession, then that does a disservice to to our patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's interesting. I'm going to start asking how they, I never asked how they use that. Well, they also said that smoking was one of the, the ways that you could get the marijuana into your system the fastest. And it only took about 10 minutes to have the full effects. Whereas if you have an edible, it takes longer because it goes into your stomach. And of course, inject, injecting yourself is faster than smoking, but people don't usually inject 
marijuana, but so smoking is the fastest way you can get it into your system. Right. Then that uh, works uh, immediately. But I think the waxes are and concentrates, those are also um, smoke. smoke. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask about your impression experts, right? You know, for eight days, you're sitting in their courtroom, seeing all sorts of different people, uh, get up and down from the stand, uh, probably many different experts that are called on from both sides. Um, what are, what is your impressions of some of the, the experts that really stood out for you? Maybe you have a, a favorite expert and, <laughs> and did you learn something new? Well, I um, thought that all the experts, you know, were very professional and very, um, really, they knew the subject backwards and forwards. I mean, they were all really impressive. And the prosecution actually proved the defense case that she was under marijuana-induced psychosis. And he, you know, really said that there were a lot of cases of marijuana um, psychosis and that they, they there were cases of violence and they confirmed that marijuana has these negative side effects. Um, so they they were, and they talked about the DSM-5 and how it has the category of cannabis-induced psychosis in it. So they explained that it was a real thing. And they tried uh, you know, as best they could to convince the jury, I think. And I found them very convincing. Yeah, I've, I liked all of the experts. I learned a great deal, and especially uh, towards the end, listening to the marijuana advocate discuss the different ways that people can use marijuana. Um, I, I was uh, enlightened. Um, yeah, by the guy who's pro marijuana by learning yeah. from him. Yeah. yeah, he really gave a, a great deal of information and. Uh, I can't remember what Christy said, but he said um, that when uh, the the attorney said, what do you think about um, the warning danger uh, for experienced users only on the website where it, they were selling OG Kush? And so they had these pictures of these different high potency flowers, including OG Kush, which was 31.8%, which I didn't know they sold that in 2018. I mean, when I heard, I heard from uh, Joe Dokes up in Shasta County that they had tested uh, marijuana leaf at somewhere around, you know, 35%. This was like a year and a half ago. And I was like, whoa, are you serious? But this was 2018. And if they were selling it at 31.8%. And these flower products were on the same page as a concentrate on their website. So that really tells you something about how strong the flower products are or can be, um, but um, so when the the advocate for marijuana was asked about that statement, he said, "I think that they're trying to protect themselves from any liability in case something bad happens to someone who uses it." So to me and to Christy, that's an admission that people know that marijuana can have really bad effects. They just uh, deny it publicly and they deny it you know when it comes to legislation they say oh that's just a whatever bad yeah. trip you're using the wrong weed or whatever interesting um now let's talk about the families you're sitting there in the audience watching this trial and around you are chad Amelia's family and Brynn Spacer's family and you were describing that they're sitting at different sides of the aisles. I don't know if you mm -hmm. sat on one and the, or the other, um, but what was it like? Because you're also looking at them uh, as well as a child, as well as the jurors. 
So Bryn Spacer has four brothers, four tall, big brothers that make her look smaller, but they're very protective of her. And she has a lovely family. Her mother was, and Bryn were both, and even her dad were crying at various aspects of the trial when they showed the body cams and the interviews and so forth. And it was very hard for them, but they were, you know, just, just a, very normal, lovely, loving family. And Chad Amelia's family was on the other side and they had buttons with a picture of Chad and you know they were there all to support Chad. And I remember one woman who looked like maybe his grandmother was there every day. I don't know about if you can remember that woman, Heidi, that was yeah. there. Mm -hmm. um, so they were both two you know, very normal, loving families that had suffered this great tragedy and they were opposed to each other because I think that um, Chad's family wanted someone to be held accountable and that someone would be Bryn. And Bryn's family felt that Chad had, was the one who gave her the marijuana. And um, Bryn really, she had just launched her career and she was in a really wonderful place. And now she was faced with, you know, like losing her um, license, her career, her reputation everything because of this incident. So both sides were very sober and very, you know, just glued into what was happening the whole time, but they were also very decorous. They didn't speak out or lash out or anything. They were, they were, you know, decorous of what was happening in the court. Yeah. Um, and um, I wonder if it's um, the, if the defendant might think of it as getting a, almost a date rape drug because she, as far as she knew, it was just marijuana. She had no idea how the, as I've mentioned, you know, how it could make her hallucinate and other things. Had she known that, there's a good chance she might not have taken any period ever in her life. Um, but because Chad was aware of that it had a negative effect on his roommate um, that and made him hallucinate that, it, that he was intentionally withholding this information from her and giving her implying her with more drugs that would make her um, significantly impaired. And so I think, yeah, that just just to add on to what Christy. But, but that's the thing about probably like all drugs and and tolerance is that you take a chance every mm -hmm. every time you use this is not like a medicine from the pharmacy with 500 milligrams and you know exactly what's in it and everybody's reaction is different right she could have taken the hits and many people do probably all over the world with not such a violent reaction and yet there are some and it's not rare like i, I see this in the emergency department it's not rare that you can have a violent reaction so you don't really know you're taking a chance mm -hmm. you're you're you know you're you're uh you know you're throwing the dice when when you do that, uh, especially if 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 you're not a regular user like Chad. I that think that it would be fairer to say that if it was well known that marijuana can cause psychosis, because we interviewed some of the other people, friends of Bryn and so forth, and they had no idea that that marijuana could have these kind of side effects. And I don't think Vinny, you know, actually had this this idea that he could have that kind of side effect. So I think that if we had enough information out there um, that the, psychi the psychiatrists were well aware of, but the general public is not, 
there's a disconnect there. And that if we had that information, then we could say, yes, you're taking, you know that you're taking this risk because the information's out there. But from my point of view, it isn't out there. It wasn't out there for my son. And it's still, it's more out there than it was, a lot more out there than it was because a lot of, a lot more people are reporting on it, but it's still um, denied. People don't believe it, even though they see it on the news or something, they'll still not believe it. That three experts testified and a lot of commenters still didn't believe it. So there's a, there's a kind of disconnect in the mind of the public. They, the public is in its own psychosis. This or denial, psychosis. denial. The public yeah. is in denial yeah. because they're being, they're seeing billboards all over the place and marketing all over the place of how good and natural and, and, you know, uh, it helps with the munchies and they're, they're buying into that very, you know, huge marketing billion dollar industry campaign there. And, uh, the, you know, the medical and advocacy community is just a very small voice in that. Um, although I think if you asked anybody who uses marijuana, can it make you paranoid? Not psychosis, but paranoid. I think people would know. Yeah. Would, they they would know denial. that, right? Mm -hmm. they, they're in denial, but on the other hand, they they know. So they're kind of schizophrenic. It's just like withdrawal. Yeah. My son had a strong withdrawal when he was a daily user. And before he became psychotic, at one time he tried to stop using. And he, he went through a withdrawal period. And um, that was a very scary period because he had a strong withdrawal because he'd been using all the time. And people didn't believe that marijuana could cause withdrawal. Yet yeah. there were a lot of websites where people were talking about their withdrawal openly. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of disconnects with marijuana. That's true. Um, again, mixed messages. Um, what about the attorneys? You know, they, they say that, you know, if you have money for a good attorney, you could get off with, with anything. And if you just have like a court-appointed attorney, then, you know, they're not getting as best. What, what is your impression of the attorneys? Did one have a better show than the other? Well, I don't know if Christy talked about um, the change of attorney on Bryn Spacer's side from going from a public defender to getting these other lawyers. Did did you? Did you uh, oh, that's interesting. That? Did you notice a different yeah. quality in that? So, that was way early on. We didn't, you know, uh, Heidi just knows one thing about that public defender. Um, mm -hmm. What what were you going to say, Heidi? So this is what I heard. I ended up meeting um, up with an old friend of mine, actually, in the courtroom, who I was completely surprised to see in the courtroom. And he's an, an old friend of mine from like 30 years ago. And he knew that I was in marijuana prevention education. So it kind of made sense that I was in Ventura attending this trial. But what was he doing there? This this guy was someone that I knew from entertainment. <laughs> and um, and so there he was attending this trial. And I was like, what's going on? And it turns out that his daughter is actually friends with the defendant. And so when uh, the defendant, Bryn Spacer, in 2018, she had a public defender. And apparently that defender wasn't working very hard for her. So my mutual friend, our mutual friend, said, oh, no, no, this is not going to go well if you stay with this guy. You have got to get better representation. And now I'm going to call Michael Goldstein and Bob Schwartz, who are uh, very seasoned um, 
you know, defense attorneys. And this is the only way that you will have a chance to to get through this. And so he called uh, Michael Goldstein and and told him about the the case. And Michael said, no, no, we're why too busy. I can't take on any new clients. He says, no, no, this is a special young lady. And this is a very special case. And you must uh, take her on. She she needs someone like you and like Bob. And so they um, they ended up taking on the case. And as uh, Christy would say, you know, they were successful in that they got the charges dropped from second degree murder to involuntary manslaughter. And so uh, Brent Spacer is facing less time in jail uh, because of that action uh, where they got the, the prosecution to agree to have their own expert witness evaluate Bryn Spacer, who then agreed with the defense ex. Interesting. So actually having money did you know, made a huge impact on her, on her sentence and on her. Well, having these other attorneys and having also Heidi telling them about marijuana-induced psychosis and getting some information to them led them to get educated. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, if she hadn't done that or if we hadn't reached out, um, Heidi and some other people in our advocacy, um, who knows what really would have happened in this case. But I think that the the by the defense getting that to happen, and it was really Chad's father was very upset when they reduced the charge because he wanted to take it to the jury of second degree murder. And by reducing the charge, they um, essentially um, won the case, in my opinion, because I think that it would be, you know, it's very hard for them to prove the, um, you know, in, that she wasn't um, involuntarily intoxicated. So um, that that really saved her um, tremendously because she would have been facing like 20 years in prison mm-hmm. for second degree murder or more. And then we're going to talk is- about the verdict in a little bit, but go ahead, Heidi. Chad Amelia's father said that he was uh, frustrated because the defense got to get new representation if they chose to, but he did not have that choice. But um, I think that the prosecution did a, a good job for him, although I don't agree that she uh, voluntarily intoxicated herself. She did intoxicate herself, but she didn't involuntarily voluntarily create psychosis in herself. So I think that that that's a law that that needs to be changed. But the prosecution was uh, very measured in in how she how she went about this and very uh, strong in her work as well. So both sides both were sides uh, very well represented. Like yeah, definitely. And about how did the trial affect you uh, personally? Did you did it change you in any way? And and Christy, you talked about seeing these brutal, violent pictures that nobody should see um uh, and again i i I know that like you know there was sometimes you can't unsee something when you see something Mm -hmm. um but how did how did the trial affect you or change you well that is something that you know it will leave a lasting impression um but it also left a lasting impression when my son had psychosis it wasn't you know to that extent that he committed a violent act although he did lose control sometimes and do, you know, things that that um, were very hard to watch. 
And um, so I've had all that in my past and I feel like I still have some PTSD from that experience. Um, and, and I think that, that um, people don't know how much it affects the families as well as the people who actually have the, the psychosis because the families are just devastated by what happens. It's like, you know, you're, it, it's, it is like a mental illness and um, you feel helpless. So I could feel her families just, you know, feeling so helpless about the situation and also Chad's feeling so helpless. And that that's something that is very palpable when you're in the courtroom. So that is what, you know, impacted me the most. How about you, Heidi? Um, yeah, I think I was, it was uh, really hard to see um, the, the graphic photos, the, um, to see uh, Chad uh, so brutally stabbed, and to see all of the all of the knife wounds, and um, I I went back to my hotel room that night and I cried. Um, I just had such deep deep uh, sadness and grief for for their family, um, and um, being a mother myself, to imagine my own child to be um, to have this happen to you know you can't help but but think that so it was really um really sad in that way at the same time um uh listening to the um the testimony the, the recorded testimony especially that uh, they played with a uh, Brent Spacer from when she was in uh the hospital and being interviewed it was uh, it was an audio interview and was played in the courtroom and she was talking about how she was so sad that she had ruined her brother's lives and just to correct Christy there's not four brothers there's three brothers and she talked about how each one um had things that were changing in their lives and she was going to go to a graduation and a wedding and um other things and she was crying and her brothers were crying her parents were crying and i found myself uh, crying too because it, it is it's just so horrible for everyone for everyone this is uh, it's unbelievable and this is and i really try to um to spin it so that i can live with uh, this and what we see on a regular basis that we can with this podcast that we're doing with you Roni thank you so much for having us and um with uh, our recordings of of what's happened in this trial hopefully we can prevent more we can prevent more senseless loss with this and i really i have to make that switch in my head because it is it really does impact you um it really does take a toll yeah you know, and Brynn won't go to graduations and stuff, but she's still alive. Chad won't go to anything. That's right. Um, what was the final verdict? What did the jury come up with? Well, <laughs> the, jury, the jury convicted her, found her guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Um, they agreed with the prosecution. Um, I, it, you know, am very, I, I would like to know more about the jury's reasoning. Um, the lawyers did talk to most of the jurors, and all I heard from Heidi, Heidi, you heard what the lawyers said about the jurors, but you didn't hear anything specific, right? Right. Yeah. I think they, um, he, I can't remember exactly the words that were used, but it's something like they just, um, they, they I, I can't remember. I can't remember, to be, to be honest. And And what was her sentence? So the sentencing is going to be on January 23rd. 
So the, the um, lawyers for the defense argued that they wanted to push it back a little bit. This is something that was interesting. The prosecution wanted to put her in jail immediately upon the sentence, uh, the guilty, guilty, sorry, the verdict, the guilty verdict. And um, both the, there'd been a substitute judge because the judge was doing something else and he did not agree that she should be put in jail immediately. And then um, when they came for, there's, there are four factors that would, um, you know, increase the sentence, which the judge went over, but the prosecution again wanted her put immediately in jail. And the judge again said that he would not agree with that. So she's still out um, of, of jail right now until the sentencing on January 23rd. And um, so we'll, we won't find out exactly what the sentence is. And the way I feel about it is, it, you know, it could be anything from probation to, you know, more than the, the recommended, like I think it was four years for involuntary manslaughter because of these other extra charges. But there's a lot of mitigating factors. So we just have to wait and find out what the sentence is. And I feel really torn and ambivalent about it because she did take a life. But she was totally, unex you know, like um, this, this was not something that anybody could have expected. If, if Bryn Spacer could have cannabis-induced psychosis, anybody could have cannabis-induced psychosis. And it's just literally, you know, like um, totally out of the blue, unexpected thing that happened to her. And we know that, you know, it's not rare, but um, she did everything right. She went to school, she graduated, she got a good job. She um, never had any criminal record. She didn't have any mental illness. She took care of herself and she still had it from one um, discreet incident. So, you know. In a, in a legal state. Yeah. Right. You know, so I, how was that bad behavior when she was at, at his place for overnight and had some marijuana? Well, the you using the marijuana is not bad behavior. It's the killing some of somebody, right? So yeah. I think that's where we kind of draw. To me, that's where the line is drawn. So, right as a, you know, violence Except. against health professionals is rampant, and it's really driven Absolutely. by drug use. So if someone comes and like you know, I was assaulted at work, knocked to the ground, and is it excuse? Well, I just had methan methamphetamine induced psychosis. Was that okay? Mm -hmm. Is that an excuse? Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, it wasn't me. It was, you know, me and drugs. And how should I know I'd, I'd, I'd punch the doctor? I thought she was trying to hurt me, you know? <laughs> is that, I mean, is that is that right? Or do we need to draw a line and take mm -hmm. accountability um, when you use drugs? Any drugs that could be, you know, you could take prednisone and get prednisone-induced psychosis. That's a prescription drug, right? That's given oh, to you by a doctor. I'm taking right? that. I'm taking that right now. Oh, my right. God. But if you, if you take that high dose, you, you can, you know, it affects your brain. And if yes. you pick up a knife and, and slash your boyfriend 108 times, is it like, well, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't, I needed my medicine and yeah. I'm sorry I killed someone. Yeah. Or, 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 is the, or is the line drawn there? Because also then it gives you free reign also to like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I, I, it wasn't me. It was the alcohol. It was my mm -hmm. cannabis. It was my meth or my prednisone. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, those drugs can affect your brain and memory and everything. But at some point, you when you 
cross the line of hurting another human being, uh, I think that's a that's a that's a red line. I think you're correct, but if we're going to take that approach with marijuana, then we have to have warnings so that people know that this can happen. I mean, prednisone comes with warning inserts, correct? It tells you that it can make you angrier and other things, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, so, I haven't read the label, so I don't know if it's so, mm-hmm. but 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 it's a it's a known it's a known effect. Um, but, yeah. but of course I agree with you. You know that. We worked on laws yes. to make that happen. We worked really hard to put labels on yeah. on cannabis products like we have for alcohol, like we have for tobacco, like we have on flashing lights for movies that can give you seizures. We got, we're a country who loves warning labels, but hey, not on, not on cannabis products. No, no. Um, we're, we agree. And we sadly um, failed on that. So, um, yeah. So I don't know. Do you do you feel like uh, justice was served? It's it's really hard to say that justice was served when Chad, you know, ended up like this. And mm-hmm. um, any you know anything is going to still he's still going to be gone. So um, I you know. It's, it's really hard to, I, I don't know, you know, as I said, I feel ambivalent about it. I don't know um, what the sentence is, sentence is going to be. And, you know, the argument for that you when you take a risk, if something like that happens, you need to be held accountable. It is an argument against using drugs because, again, they, you know, they are, um, you don't know, you know, it can, it can affect anybody. So if you just avoid using them, then you're a little bit safer from the risk. You're, you're not going to um, put yourself at that kind of a risk. So um, I think I think it is a good argument that that um, it's better, you know, to not use those kind of substances, because what does it really do to me? It's what does it really do to help you? What did it do to help Chad to use marijuana every day? I didn't get a chance to ask him that. So I don't know. I think what, what just from, from, for your stories, he, he had an addiction. Chad, Chad yes. was addicted, right? He it was saying like he was on the phone waiting for the delivery. Like, yes. you know, it's not here yet. You know, it's like somebody who, you know, need is addicted and, 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 and needs that. So he, he had a medical, uh, you know, from, from one. Well, I, I believe that. And I believe he also could have, you know, progressed into psychosis or some, you know, worse situation because, you know, addiction can be, can creep up on you and it can be like, oh, this is, this is fine. I can do this. I or, or maybe this. he had an addiction without the psychosis. So he, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's much more addiction without psychosis than there is, you know, pre- proceeding to psychosis, even though psychosis itself is not rare, but addiction mm-hmm. to marijuana is very, from what I've seen, it's it's getting to be a little, you know, like almost rampant. Yeah, because so many people are using it. I I think people will use drugs uh, no matter what what we do or say. But the difference mm-hmm. is that what makes marijuana so different than methamphetamine or fentanyl or or tobacco or alcohol is the risks of all those other drugs are known, and pe- mm-hmm. people are making an informed decision when they when they do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but with marijuana, it's, you know, like 
oh, well, you know, you, you drive better and it's medicine. And, and the whole concept of medicine that's not FDA approved is like hijack my profession, which I, 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 I think is terrible. Um, and, and it's actually, it, it's a corrosion of the entire healthcare profession when you could call anything your medicine. Um, but um, anyways, I definitely agree with, with all what you're talking about is that we do need education out there. And, uh, you know, whether justice is served or not, I don't know. I guess that's uh, for anybody else to judge who's watching the case. What are, What's the impression for um, Bryn and Spacer family um, versus Chad and the O'Mealy family? I don't know that I can speak to that, but I, I would like to say that um, in terms of justice, I would like to see, um, you know, different aspects of our society held accountable for this, because um, this professional young woman would never have tried marijuana if she knew it could cause hallucinations. And this young professional, young man, Chad Amelia, the accountant, um, maybe would have taken different actions if he knew that the psychosis is not something to laugh at, but something he should take seriously. He could have gotten, grabbed one of his roommates and said, oh my gosh, she's having a bad reaction. I need your help. And the two of them could have subdued her or he could have called 911 and saved his own life. Um, but because the media does not report on this and when they do, they joke about it, they laugh about it, or they talk about the positive things about marijuana. Very rarely will they accept to talk about marijuana induced psychosis. They, they're afraid of being um, attacked like many of us are for saying, oh, you're just reefer madness. You're just a prohibitionist for saying anything negative at all. And then our legislature who shot down warning labels in our state, as you were just talking about, Ronit, that we worked so hard on and they just go yeah no too much pressure from the industry there's too much money from the industry to tell anyone and the industry itself who knows that this can happen to some people and it's just amazing to me when you hear marijuana proponents go oh that never happened to me there's no way it can happen so it never happened to you <laughs> that means it can't ever happen to anyone i mean the the logic is just makes no sense at all. Even Joe Rogan says there are people who simply cannot use this drug. I've seen people completely lose their minds. At least he will say that, you know, um, but there's so many people who are just so hell-bent on, there's no way I'm going to say anything bad. And then the revered National Alliance of Mental Illness here in California, they refuse to talk about marijuana. I hear that they are getting funding, that NAMI is getting funding from the cannabis industry, so they don't want to talk bad about cannabis. There's so uh, I did not know that. Well, that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? <clears throat> yeah. So them and the California Department of Public Health, they have a whole campaign out there called Mind Over Marijuana. And they cite the schizophrenia researchers' work, but they don't post it on their Instagram. And when asked about it, I said, how come you guys aren't talking about schizophrenia or psychosis? There's no answer. There's no answer from anybody. Or bipolar so, or mania or depression or the fact that it's the number one drug in people who died by suicide under the age of 25 or... Yeah. All they're talking about is depression and memory loss. Say, so you got to remember things... 
Right. Oh, no, so, what about suicide? <laughs> what about so, so last year we figured, okay, California doesn't care about <laughs> adults mm-hmm. and psychosis. Uh, so we thought mm-hmm. to protect babies. Who would think yeah. that not protecting babies would be pop, you know, uh, such right. a threat? So we wanted to do a candy ban to protect kids under the age of five, which is the number one uh, reason uh, babies come to the emergency department for any type of poisoning. And that got shut down. Um, but we won't give up. Um, this year, I'm reviving, hopefully, uh, a bill for labels on prescription medications. So when you pick up your blood pressure medicine, your depression medicine, or your blood thinner medicine, you'll get a warning that says don't use with cannabis products, both THC or CBD. So right, right. I'll be coming back and asking for your support and guidance in that. And hopefully that'll get the get going. That's a hopeful way to end this with positive steps. If if we're <laughs> well, it, it's just a matter of a critical mass because um, I see these type of cases every day. Unfortunately, not with that type of brutality and and uh, death, but that type of violence, I I definitely see. Um, and it's just a matter of getting to the critical amount where where society's uh, wants to know more, and we're seeing more than that with more, um, you know media requests um to to tell the story right or or young people are are themselves these reporters are young themselves and they are told that this is great and then they see their friends around themselves having you know terrible um reactions and so they want to start reporting on that so um what is it that you hope that Bryn herself can you know like um recover an advocate and become an advocate if, or if she doesn't, you know, if she doesn't choose to, at least she can redeem her life to, you know, to some extent, um, which Chad cannot. And, you know, that's really a tragedy. And so I would um, want, I would want to hear Brim say, I did this when I was under, when I had cannabis induced psychosis and it was horrible. Instead of someone else did, it wasn't me, you know, mm-hmm. it was, I, I did this, but I wasn't myself, um, which is true for a lot of people who ha- are using drugs, whether it's psychosis or not. And I see them in the emergency department and when they're getting sober, I ask them, are you getting your brain back? And they know exactly what I mean. They're back to themselves, mm-hmm. like right. who they are at that peak in the emergency department when they're drunk or intoxicated. That's not who they are. You know, right. that's not who they yeah. are as a human being. Their, their brain has been hijacked. Um, right. But but it is, it's still them. There has to be accountability. But I think, you know, if Bryn came to that, um, you know, she could she could speak out and explain that, you know, this is not what I wanted in my life, but I, I, I experienced cannabis-induced psychosis and, and um, this is what I did, even though that's not... That's not who I am. It's life changing. And the same thing that happened to my son, it changed the trajectory of his life forever. And the same thing for Bryn, only in an even more, you know, profound way. And um, so we'll be looking to see, you know, what is her her story going forward. But mm-hmm. I know she she does, you know, feel that that she wants to be an advocate. Um, and and tell people that this can happen that that she had no idea but you know get get her story out there. Uh, thank you. And actually, now that you say that, I don't know if you have contact with her, but if she wants to be on the podcast, I'll 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 talk to her and let her say her piece. 
Great. Yeah, if she wants to do that. Um, I want to thank you so much, uh, Heidi, Christy, for for your passion, for never giving up. And I've I've known you ladies, and and that's very admirable, and you do it from... um, a public health perspective and a personal perspective. So I really want, you know, peace for um, Heidi, for your brother and for your son, Christy, and um, and uh, whatever closure when you have such a atrocity happen to you as they did to um, both Chad's family and Bryn's family, if, if they get at peace and find a way to, um, from tragedy, to make the world a better place. And I see that with what you guys do. Um, uh, that's that's kind of what I wish. And for the public, we just want we want to tell you what to do or be prohibitionist. We want you to be informed and understand the risks, and those risks are being hidden, and you should be aware, as this terrible case illustrates. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you, Roni, and thank you for um, being an ongoing warrior in um, the fight for uh, public health protections with this drug. Thank you. And others, and others. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where you learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Doctors Educating on the Harms of Marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org. That's I-A-S-I-C-1.org. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Mm-hmm.